the kids. Yeah. Um, I ask for the parents to come back and sign in your children for me, please, and then we will go have some fun. Awesome. Amen. Well, it is awesome to be with you guys this morning. I was trying to figure out when was the last time I preached here, and uh, I think it was October. So I've been back there about to explode, um, just just ready to uh, share. Um, it, it was funny the other day. Um, Keisha and I were doing stuff out in town, and the Lord laid this on my heart. This has been a message that I've wanted to preach for years, probably as long as I've, I've been coming to Grace Point since 2014. I've wanted to preach this message since then, and the Lord just would not release me to do it. And the other day we were. We were doing things and uh, out in town, and the Lord just released me in my spirit to, to share this message. And I thought, well, I'm not scheduled to preach anytime soon. Jeremiah gets up with me, I swear, within 20 minutes. And he's like, hey, I need you to preach Sunday morning if you're available. And I was like, I am not available, but I will be available. You know, so, uh, so, I made it, so we made it happen as a family. Uh, anyways... We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. We'll, we'll try to give people a, a few minutes. But um, I do want to give you a... I feel like i got to give you a warning. If you've never heard me preach, I share a lot of Scripture. And I, and I will definitely be doing that this morning because what's on my heart, um, it is not without controversy. And that's why, um, that's why God has really, <laughs> that's the reason I, I've not been released to share that up to this point. Um, so everything I shared this morning, it will come with Scripture. And I like to preach in such a way that when someone comes up to me and says, I don't agree with that, I can ask them, which verse did you not like? Which verse did you not agree with? Um, so you have been warned, but... Um, Everything we do, we're, we're going to back up with the Word this morning, okay? So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7. And you know, there's, there's what we can call um, pop theology, and it's kind of the thing that's popular right now, and people will, will coin this term, and they'll say, you know, this is... Um, th this is the big thing right now. And, and what happens is we get in these circles and we begin to repeat these terms not really thinking about whether or not they're biblical. And so, so these terms, that even though they may contradict a scripture, two scriptures, three scriptures, we still use them because they're just kind of ingrained into our head. right? And so this morning I'm actually going to begin by speaking about one of those terms don't throw anything at me, but uh, it's a term that we use that's not correct. And the term is the finished work of the cross. Okay, now that, that sounds like, what are you saying? The, work, the work's not finished on the cross. That is exactly what I'm saying. That when we say the finished work of the cross, I understand people's motive behind it, I understand what they're saying, but biblically, and isn't that what matters? Biblically speaking, it's inaccurate. Okay? So 1 Corinthians 15, I said verse 7. That is not, that is not the right verse. I meant verse 17. Uh, so sorry, I gave you guys the wrong verse this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. It's okay. It's a small verse. It, it, it ain't going to hurt us to miss it. 
It says, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. If the work was finished on the cross, then Paul could not say if Jesus hadn't been raised, you would still be in your sins because wouldn't the cross have dealt with sin? But he says, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you are still in your sins. So this coming week is Passion Week. It's the, it's, it's the week you know, where, where we celebrate and we, we remember the, the three days that changed the world. Um, you know, the, the world is going to, well, the church world is going to begin celebrating on Friday. You can figure that math out in your head, how three days and three nights fits in between Friday evening and Sunday morning, but um, that's another message for another day. That's another one that's wrong that I don't have time for. But, um, so, really what Paul is saying here is the work wasn't finished on the cross. Something happened in between the cross to the resurrection that dealt with the sin issue. So if we want to, to, to know the finished work, then we have to look at what happened from the cross to the throne. Because in that, there is where sin was dealt with. Uh, now, we're in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look up at verse 1, and we're going to start here. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. This here is the gospel. Paul is about to tell us what is the gospel, which, also, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. You are saved by this gospel. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, it is important. This isn't what we're sharing this morning is not just semantics, right? It's not just, it's not just arguing over terms and over events. It is important that you remember this, that you know this. For I delivered unto you, verse 3, first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The gospel is not just the cross. The gospel is the death, which is the cross, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Those three things make up the gospel, and it's in those three events that we find the finished work that we learn what the finished work is. Okay? Um, because, and, and let me say this, there's more to the finished work, or, or there's more to death, burial, and resurrection than, than what those words seem to imply on the surface. Because here's what we think, or this is what I used to think. So i got to believe Jesus died. Well, He died on the cross. Physically, he died on the cross. He was buried. He was put in a tomb. Three days later, he was resurrected. He came out. He's alive. These terms, when Paul used them, they meant much more than Jesus died, 
They stuck him in a tomb for three days, and then he, he came alive. There's more in each one of these terms that is revealed in Paul's uh, revelation of the gospel. And, and this is why this is important. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it's not just these events that you need to know and mentally assent to. Your every victory, your every battle, and the outcome of that battle hinges upon your ability to identify with those three days that changed the world. If you want to have victory in the middle of your stuff, if you want to have a good, uh, faithful outcome, you have to be able to identify with that death, burial, and resurrection. And you can't identify with anything that you don't quite understand. Now, there is a mystery to these things that we're going to speak about. And I don't have all the answers. But I have enough Scripture to be able to give you a broad outline of what just took place in those three days and three nights. Okay? So let's first talk about Jesus' death. Go with me to Romans chapter 5 in verse 11. And because we spend so much time uh, talking about Jesus' death, and I'm not trying to downplay that or say that's not important. See, because I know, I understand that Paul said, for I preach nothing, uh, I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But what he was really getting at is, that's when things began. That's when this plan of redemption was set in motion. Okay? Um, so Romans chapter 5, verse 11, like I said, I'm not downplaying the death, but here at this church and... and uh, we, we speak about this a lot. Uh, Romans 5, verse 11. Paul speaking. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. Or uh, the New King James Version says uh, reconciliation. And... Um, I hear people, you know, a lot of people argue, no, well, there's no such thing as an atonement under the new covenant. You know, there's reconciliation. That's true, but neither one of them really bring out, atonement or reconciliation really bring out what he's saying. In the Greek, do you know what this word means? You look it up, you'll see the first, very first definition. Atonement or reconciliation means exchange. So what he's saying here is, through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the exchange. Now what's an exchange? It's, okay, Brian, here's my Bible, you give me your phone. Right? That's an exchange. We exchange what, what belongs to one another for, some, you know, for what the other one has. And what this is calling attention to is the Old Testament sacrificial system. Because the way that system would work is when, when the sinner would bring the offering to the priest, what would happen is the sinner would place his hand up on the head of the lamb, or, or it could have been also a, a bull, or it could have been a dove, but doves they didn't place their hands on. But nonetheless, let's just say a lamb, since Jesus is the lamb of the world. Um, so they would place their hand upon that lamb. Now listen, you, you've heard this, this idea that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was, it wasn't about faith. God has always been about faith. 
He has never done anything that wasn't about faith. He's never set up a system where faith isn't the most important aspect. Alright, so we've always had to reach God through faith. So in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there is faith. And what would happen is when that sinner would place his hand upon the head of the lamb, by faith, what would happen is there was this exchange and there's a mystery here. We don't understand it. But the idea was my sins are being exchanged for this animal's uh, innocence. My guilt for his innocence. My sin for his righteousness. My, my dirtiness, my filthiness for his cleanness. Right. So there was this exchange that took place. And what Paul is saying is, on the cross, that exchange took place between us and Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For him who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There's an exchange. So anything that Jesus had, so anything you see him possessing up till the cross, when on the cross, He gave you that. And He took all your junk. That pain, He took that. That anxiety, took that. Depression, took that. PTSD, took that. Addiction, took that. Guilt, took that. Condemnation, took that. And in exchange, He gave you His innocence, His righteousness, His good standing with the Father, He gave that to you. And He gave you more than that. He gave you His love, His joy, His peace. He gave us everything He had. So Paul is saying when you look at the cross, what you're seeing is an exchange. Alright? Now remember what we said, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. And this is where, um, hopefully not here, but I'm going to probably get some mean messages. Alright? So 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 he who knew no sin became what? Sin. sin. He became sin. Now, some modern translations, like the New Living Translation, I believe, says this, and that, that he became a sin offering. Now, there's a truth to that, but the problem is, in the Greek, that word sin means sin. It's the same word in the Greek where Paul says, you have died to sin. So Jesus on the cross did not just take the punishment for your sin. He did, just not t he did not just take the guilt for your sin. Jesus became sin. The one example that Jesus used in His own ministry was, remember when the serpent was lifted up on the pole in the Old Testament. He was saying, that's me on the cross. Have you ever wondered, why not a lamb? Why didn't, he, why didn't God, if, if that was supposed to be a type of Jesus, why not put a lamb upon a pole? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. Why was the serpent bronze? Because bronze is the, is the metal in the Old Testament of judgment. That's where sacrifice is offered. All right. So he was saying, I'm going to become that thing that is so ugly in your life. I'm going to become that load that you just can't bear. I'm going to become that, that load, that thing that keeps you up at night. He became sin. 
Martin Luther said it this way, the great reformer. He said it this way, that one on the cross, that innocent man on the cross, became the worst adulterer the world has ever known. He became the worst drunkard that has ever walked the streets. He became sin. Whatever the sin is, homosexuality, whatever it is, Jesus took that nature upon Himself. On the cross, there was an exchange. He took our sin nature. And when He did that, now let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Not only did He take the sin nature upon Himself, He took all of sin's effects and consequences. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangs on a tree. So somehow, Jesus had to, had to bring this sin nature upon Himself. There's a mystery here, because we know He was without sin, yet somehow when he, he, he allowed them to put Him on a cross, something allowed that sin nature to enter into Him, and then He received all of the curse of the law. Now, have you ever looked up and read, it's in Deuteronomy 28, Have you ever looked up what's in that curse? There's nothing horrible in your life that's not contained in that curse. Not one thing. Um, I wrote down a few things here. Fevers in the curse of the law. So, So think about this. This isn't just, it's not just something that Paul said, like, oh, he took the curse of the law upon himself. No, on the cross, Jesus experienced this. So on the cross, Jesus experienced fevers. He felt like he was burning up. Jesus experienced tumors. Uh, Isaiah 52, the last verse, says that his form was more marred than any man. In other words, Jesus wasn't even recognizable as a human being on the cross. Have you seen tumors and how ugly tumors... I believe every tumor that someone has had in the last 2,000 years was in that body on the cross. Inflammation. That's arthritis. I've had family members who had crippling arthritis and their hands were turned every way and their feet. He looked like that on the cross. He experienced that on the cross. Extreme burning. Again, felt like he was on fire. Here's one, starvation. Here's one. Uh, it, was, it was in the curse of the law that, that your children would be taken from you. That your wives and your husbands would be slaughtered in front of you. Grief. He experienced grief on the cross. Blindness. He couldn't see on the cross. And then the, King James calls it madness of mind. He dealt with the schizophrenia. He dealt with uh, the bipolar disorder. He dealt with these things all on the cross came into His body. And then He died. Okay? Now here's the thing. Look at that that situation. 
Sin's not been dealt with. Sin's in his body. He is sin. But sin's not been dealt with. What about John 19 verse 30? It is finished. He's not talking about sin. He's talking about the sacrifice. He's talking about that He became the Lamb of the world. That He took all the curse upon Himself. He was saying this part is finished. See, because when we say, okay, well He said it's finished right there on the cross, He's not talking about the entire plan of redemption. Do you know that a chapter or two before that in the garden, He said it was finished before He said it on the cross? What was He talking about there? Him living a perfect life, that part of the redemption was finished. On the cross, He became sin. He took all the curse into His body. That part was finished. But there's more. Okay, and then... So let's go to John chapter 20, and we're going to begin with verse 11. So, He died. And so this is where the Scripture talks about Jesus was buried. Now, we know in the natural, His body was placed into a borrowed tomb that belonged to a rich man. Alright? We know that. But that's not... So listen, after this message, when you read the New Testament, especially the Pauline epistles, you're going to read something totally different when Paul says burial or buried. Because he's not just talking about Jesus being put in a tomb. Okay, so we know his body went into a tomb. Where did his soul go? Where did his spirit and his soul go? Now, growing up, I was raised in church. I just assumed, of course, he went to heaven, right? Remember, he became sin. And most people that would argue about what I'm about to teach you, most people who would argue this point with me, if I ask them, what happens when a sinner dies? Well, they go to hell. He became sin. The righteous became the sinner. All right, John chapter 20, verse 11. Let's see. Did he go to heaven when he died? Let's, let's, did he go to be with the Father? So this is resurrection morning. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping, and she wept. She stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seen two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet. This is a picture. I love this. This is a picture of, of the mercy seat, of the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. And they said unto her, Woman, why do you weep? She said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it is Jesus. I don't have the time to get into this. Have you ever wondered why they didn't recognize it was Jesus? Think about the last time they saw him. He was unrecognizable. Okay? Alright, I ain't got time for that. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why do you weep? Whom do you seek? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if you have borne him hence, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabbi, which is the same Master. Now listen to this. Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. She can't touch him because he's saying, I've yet to be with the Father. Don't touch me because the Father's not touched me yet. So he couldn't have been with the Father up to this point. So where was Jesus in the tomb? 
Where We know His body was in the tomb, but where was His soul? Acts chapter 2, verse 22. I'm telling you, and you're going to be like, okay, what's the point of this? I'm telling you, everything I preach, I believe it has the potential to be that thing that you're missing from seeing victory in your life. Everything. I, I, I don't... I was just sharing with Keisha last night. We know some, some ministers that are doing some things. I said, if, if it's not helping people, I'm just not interested in it. I have no desire for a platform. I have no desire for those things. I just want to help people. So the only reason I'm sharing that this morning is I'm telling you, when you see what Jesus went through in His burial, your faith can soar. You're going to find out what it means when Jesus said, I, have, I was dead and I'm alive and I have the keys of death and hell. That wasn't, just, that wasn't just something that sounded good. It wasn't just a punchline. No, he's about, he was telling you, I went somewhere and I now have the keys to that place because I overcame it. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up. Now listen to this. Having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. There was some pains in his death that he couldn't be held by. Alright, let's read on. Verse 25, For David speaks concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh shall rest in hope. Listen to this. So his flesh is resting. His flesh is resting. His body is resting. All right, you know how Paul always calls them the dead in Christ? It doesn't mean that they're asleep in a grave, but their body, as far as their body is concerned, resting. All right? Because you will not leave my soul in where? In hell. Neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. You shall make me full of joy with your countenance. Now listen here. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Now people will try to say, all hell is, and I'm referring to like modern translations, get it right when they refer to it as Hades, Sheol, that's correct, but... All that is, is they will say, that's just talking about being in a grave. No. And this is proof of that because, it's, because look here. He says, his, uh, his, flesh, his soul was not left in hell, neither separate, neither did his flesh see corruption. So he is separating what his flesh was experiencing from what his soul was experiencing. He's saying his soul's not going to be left in hell 
and his body isn't going to be left in the grave. This Jesus has God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. Alright? That word hell is the Greek word Hades. Most modern translations get it right when they say Hades. Um, But that is the exact Greek word. Now the word Hades is not, listen, I, I hear people, they say, listen, all hell is, all Hades is, is just the grave, being put in the grave. No, it's not. And in the Greek, that is so far off. When you look up the word Hades in the Greek, here's what you'll see. The realm of the dead. All right, now you could still argue, oh, that's just the grave because the dead are in the grave. No, W.E. Vine was probably the best Greek scholar that we've, you know, in, in our lifetimes, you know. And, and he, he said this about the word Hades. He said, is, this is referring to the region of the departed spirits of the lost. So he's telling us. See, Jesus even taught this in, his, in, in Luke chapter 16 when he told about the rich man and Lazarus. He said, Lazarus awoke in Abraham's bosom, but he only mentions the rich man as lifting up his eyes in Hades. Why? Because it's, it's a place where only the wicked go. So, for, for G, so what this is saying is Jesus went to, I prefer to say, rather than Hades or hell, Jesus went to the realm of the dead. He went to the abode of the wicked. Now here's where people have trouble with that. Because don't confuse hell or Hades with the lake of fire. These, those are two very different things. And that's what we think. We think, okay, when we think of hell, we just think of this, this ball of fire where people are burning and screaming. No, hell as it currently is, Hades, is a holding place. Now, you can do research on your own, but it is a place of darkness and it is a place of separation. Those two things we know. Everything else is kind of people getting confused with the lake of fire. So don't think about that. Ephesians chapter, let me just make a few more points of this. I just want to bring this home and let people see uh, where Jesus went. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. These are some of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Wherefore he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended... What is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Now, here's the thing. Now, I, I, there's some people say, oh, this is referring to his descension into the earth from heaven. Uh, like a W. Vine, I was looking up his thing the other, th- other day, and when he's referring to this, he said, never could this ever be referring to just descending to earth. It has to be referring to where Jesus went when he died. Um, and part of that is, listen to this, so let's say if you're saying, well, it could be talking about a tomb. You, Jesus didn't descend into a tomb. Have you ever seen a picture of the tomb in Jerusalem? Some, Connie might have even been there, Connie and John. The tomb is not something you, 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 you descend into. It, it's just something you put his body into and you walk out. You don't descend into it. It's not like the modern day grave. Okay, You could say somebody descended into a grave. You don't descend into a tomb. All right, so this isn't referring to uh, Jesus 
uh, being put in a tomb. But I, I want you to know this. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all, that he might fill all things. What Paul is saying is, you don't realize how important that descent was. Because if he didn't descend, he couldn't have ascended. And when he ascended, he filled all things. So the, the exchange was completed. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Hold on. Let's just... Hold on. I got to... Shut up, Grant. Slow down. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 40. We don't have to turn there. But Jesus said that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so also will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. The heart, and and listen, this is a study for you to go later. Look up in the Old Testament what they understood as the heart of the earth. They understood it to be the place where the wicked went when they left this life. Okay? That is Old Testament language. Now, I do want to look at this, this scripture because this is just one of my favorite things in the Old Testament. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 16 and verses 7 and 8. Now, this morning... I thought about titling this message, The Gospel According to a Couple of Goats. And uh, I decided not to because even though, yeah. So Leviticus chapter 16 verse 7, this is referring to the Day of Atonement. And he shall take the two goats, speaking of the high priest, and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now here is the way that I typically hear this taught. So so the high priest brings two goats. One he's going to sacrifice. The other he's going to let go into a wilderness, into the desert. And the way I typically hear this taught is... That goat that was sacrificed is representative of Jesus. The scapegoat, that's what the other goat is, is known as, the scapegoat is us because we got to go free. No. The scapegoat, when you find out what happened to the scapegoat, the scapegoat didn't just go have a good time in the desert. Okay? Here's the thing. Jesus is both goats. And each goat is, rep- is a type of, of the, the first goat is a type of Jesus on the cross. The second goat, the scapegoat, is a type of Jesus in Hades, of Jesus in hell, okay? Um, jump down. Well, let me say this first. So one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. This is, remember how I said it wasn't finished on the cross? That word scapegoat is the Hebrew word Azazel. And it's really interesting. You can go Google Azazel, and that is a, a he has been, he's, it's sort of a, a Jewish mythical creature, but he's not a myth. But you can find that stuff and, and kind of that stuff me and Tim's interested with, with the Nephilim and stuff like that. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting, okay? Um, but anyways, here's what that word means in the Hebrew. Entire removal. So what it's saying in the Hebrew is one goat's going to deal, one goat's going to be sacrificed, but the other goat is our entire removal of sin. Sin wasn't dealt with on the cross. It began there. But the entire removal of sin was dealt with in the grave. Okay? Uh, verses 20 through 22. 
And when he has made an end of... So this is picking up. The high priest has, has just offered the first goat. When he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat, the scapegoat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, listen to this, and shall send him away, listen, by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. Why? Why does it have to be someone who is fit? Why does it have to be someone who is strong? The idea is, listen, this goat, he about to go crazy. Because the sin, listen, I am so thankful for this grace revolution, but sometimes we, we just don't realize, or we, we just really don't bring out how, how vile sin is. Now, I'm not talking about, hey, you sinned, you're awful. I'm not, I'm not referring to that. I'm talking about man in his sin. All you have to do to know how vile sin is, is look at the cross. Look at the price that had to be paid. So he was saying, listen, when this, when, when this exchange takes place, and all these sins go on that goat, he's, he, homeboy's about to go nuts. <laughs> you better have somebody that's strong. You better put your strongest man on him because he's going to give you a fight. This is one reason I believe every time that exchange took place, normally, besides this instant, that animal was immediately uh, killed. I believe it was, in a way, mercy because it, would, it was going to drive that animal crazy. All right? And that's what Brian just said. It could only be the Son of God who took this upon Himself. Only He could handle that. He, only, see, Jesus was the fit man. Okay? And He was... See, here's the thing about typology. Quit, baby, quit trying to put yourself into it. It's all about Jesus. You know, uh, I've shared before the story of Abraham and Lot. I've heard so many people, we're Abraham. We are interceding for the United States of America. And if we can just get God down to ten, then God won't destroy America. Honey, listen. You ain't Abraham. You're Lot. Jesus is Abraham. Come on, brother. That's it right there. You are never the hero of the story. Okay? So Jesus is the fit man. Jesus is the scapegoat. And Jesus is the sacrifice to go. Okay? So send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. Verse 22. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Hebrew tradition says this scapegoat would always go crazy until he threw, found a cliff to throw himself off of. That's Hebrew tradition. That that goat would immediately go, go crazy and try to find himself a spot where he could throw himself off because he wanted to put himself out of his misery. Okay? That word in the Hebrew, not inhabited, has one meaning in the original language. Separation. This goat will go into a land of separation. 
That is hell. Get the images out of your head about fire. Get the images out of your head, people screaming and begging. Get these things out of your mind. What makes hell, hell is separation. That is the torment that the rich man couldn't handle in hell. The torment, he said, I'm tormented by this flame. Listen, I don't think that necessarily means that, there was, that there's an actual flame there. I think the flame he's talking about is he was just, you know how like you, you, when, when, when you're, you're just, you begin to burn up, right? You're, you're just aggravated over something, you begin to burn up. It feels like you're on fire. I believe that's what he was experiencing. Okay, so what makes hell that horrible place is separation. So the scapegoat here, who is Jesus, goes into the place of separation. My God, remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt that separation on the cross. And he took it to the grave, and he took it as far as he could take it. On the cross, he suffers the curse of the law. In the grave, in the realm of the dead, in Hades, he suffers total darkness and separation from the Father. That which makes sin so horrible is that it separates us from the Father. Now we can go back and forth. Is it on our end, his end? doesn't matter. It's separation. And he experienced that separation And this is why this is so powerful. Your sin, as a believer, your sin can't send you to hell because it already sent Jesus there. If Jesus, the wages of sin is death. If all Jesus did was die for you but didn't go to hell, there's still a payment you owe. If Jesus died for you, well good, He handled that that part. But what about where the sinner goes to hell? If he didn't pay that debt, you still owe him. He paid every debt that we owe. Okay? (laughs) You know, I went through a season of my life where I felt like God was a million miles away. And and it it was a little while after the loss of our son. And I can remember just going through this season where I was like, okay, God, I felt like used to, you and I were like this. And, I, you know, and it's good to be honest with God, right? He knows. And it's cleansing when you're honest with Him. But I was like, right now, I feel like we're this far apart. And I, I practice what I call meditative prayer. I don't just get on my knees and, and, just, and just tell God what I want or anything like that. I go to my heart. I sit down. I close my eyes. Sometimes I turn music on. And the whole time I'm praying, I'm envisioning things. I'm seeing things. And... Um, God tells me when, I, when I'm saying this to him, I'm home alone, and he says, won't you just acknowledge the events of the gospel? That's why he said, just acknowledge it. So I begin to acknowledge it. Close my eyes, I'm going into my heart zone. Jesus, I believe that you died on that cross. And I'm seeing him dying on that cross. And I'm like, Jesus, and I'm, I'm shortening this up for time. Jesus, I believe you descended into the realm of the dead, into the abode of the wicked. And when I did that, and I was envisioning that, I felt what he felt in that place. And what he felt in that place was what I was feeling in the place where I was. But it was so much darker 
It was so much deeper. See, in my place, I had a little bit of hope. He was in a place where he couldn't feel hope. Now, he believed in hope, but he couldn't feel hope. Okay? That loneliness that you feel because of what you're going through, he felt it. He took it to that place. He experienced it. And that, those moments you have, God, are you there? He had it. He felt it. It was real to him. See, this is what makes the, our God so good. You do not have a God who cannot be touched with the, the feelings. Notice that. We try to do away with feelings. You don't have a God who cannot be touched with your feelings. He can feel it. He has felt it. He has dealt with it. Alright, so on the cross, He suffers this. So what happens? Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Paul is speaking here. And now, here's where we're getting into the place where there's some mystery there. Alright, and so I, I, for sake of time as well, I'm not going to get into all these things. But Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Listen to this. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Therefore we are buried with Him. What's that mean? Right? So our burial at baptism isn't just... It's not like, oh, this is how Jesus was placed in the tomb. No, this is Jesus falling into Hades. This is Jesus falling into the realm of the dead. Remember, and here's another thing, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. You know what He was really saying? Lord, where I'm going, it's going to take you to get me out. Okay? Verse 4, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. So He's in the realm of the dead. He's, he's paying that debt that we owe. How'd He get out? Okay? How'd He get out? Remember, He's in this place. He is sin. He is the sinner. This tells us right here, and it's hid in the Greek, by the glory, the doxa of the Father. When you look up the word doxa in the Greek, listen to what it says. W. E. Vine says, it only has one meaning every time it's used in the New Testament. And it's always referring to a good opinion of someone. So Jesus is suffering separation He's in this place of darkness. He's, he's feeling that separation from His Father. But even in that place, He keeps a good opinion of His Father. Even by the glory of the Father, He was raised up. Now, there's a mystery here that we don't quite understand. And listen, for homework, remember what Jesus said? Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, I'll be in the heart of the earth. You want to know how Jesus came out of the realm of the dead? Read Jonah 2. Study it. Meditate on it. And, and, and take all this into consideration and you will realize that that is a perfect explanation of what happened to Jesus in the realm of the dead. And do you know how, do you know how Jonah 2 ends? Jonah proclaims salvation, Yeshua, is of the Lord. It ends with salvation. And then it says, and God caused the fish to spit out Jonah, which is a type of resurrection. Alright, so there are some mysteries here, but here's the thing. 
I'm just going to sum- summarize it. When Jesus was in Hades, when he was in hell, he uses and maintains his faith in his good Father. Because faith isn't about just the ability to believe a promise, it's about to believe, it's about believing in the character of the one who promised. So when Jesus is in the, the heart of the earth, he is meditating on, he is thinking upon, he is believing all those Old Testament scriptures, you will not leave my soul in hell. Neither will my flesh see corruption. He can't feel it. It's like us. You ever had those moments? By his stripes I am healed. By his stripes I am healed. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But you still hurt, you still feel sick, and you still feel as condemned as before you began confessing it. He dealt with that. That's what he experienced. But his faith, the King James talks about numerous times the faith of the Son of God. The measure of faith. It's not referring to the, just the faith that He operated on the earth. It's referring to the faith that He operated in the heart of the earth. Because that faith overcame death, hell, and the grave. That faith overcame separation from the Father. That faith, listen to this, is how He received a righteous nature. Because here's the one that really make people mad. This is the part people get mad at me. This is just don't throw anything at me. At some point, the legal price had been paid. You can read in Peter. He goes. He proclaims to, to the fallen spirits of the demons, "Hey, I conquered you. I have overcome." He resurrects. But here's the thing: he resurrects as the first born again man. Now that's the part where people get upset. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, Great is the mystery of godliness and without controversy. I was reading that last night and I, I literally laughed out loud. Without controversy. I'm like, that's the most controversial thing that you can teach because he said God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit. Now in translations, the Spirit will be capitalized. But here's the thing, there's no capitalizations in Greek. So whenever you see spirit capitalized or anywhere capitalized, the translators have said, I think this is it's got to be talking about the Holy Spirit. But sometimes it's referring to your human spirit. He would now why would Jesus need to be justified, made righteous in the spirit if he was born without a sin nature? Because on the cross, he took the sin nature upon himself. And in Hades, he used his faith. He overcame death, hell, and the grave, took the keys, and became the first born-again man. It's the exact same way that we are, we are saved. We have a sin nature. We are separated from the Father. We use our faith in the promises of God, and we're made righteous. We are born again. He was, in the Greek, it says Jesus was the prototype. The first. He was the model. Colossians 1.18 says, He was the first begotten of the dead. And when people read that, they're like, yeah, He was the first one to be resurrected. Have you read about Lazarus? He wasn't the first man raised from the dead. That can't be what that's talking about. He was the first man to come back from the spiritual death that is sin. 
He was the first man who put off that sin nature and received a righteous nature. Acts chapter 13, let's read this one. Acts chapter 13 and verses 28 through 33. One reason I'm passionate about this subject, listen, you know why I don't preach a lot on hell and the lake of fire and stuff? You know in the book of Acts, you won't find one sermon on hell and the lake of fire. And to me, when I see thousands were getting saved in one meeting, those sounds like pretty good results to me. So I kind of want to preach what they were preaching. And, every, and, and so numerous times in the sermons in the book of Acts, they talk about Jesus' descent into Hades. Okay, Acts chapter 13, verse 28. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. So what's he talking about? The resurrection, right? And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that He has also raised up Jesus again. What's the subject? Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Now listen to this. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. And when people talk about the only begotten Son of God, what do they talk about? His birth. The subject isn't His birth. The subject is His resurrection. And He says, because begotten does mean born. He says, this day have I made you born. Born what? Born again. This day, the resurrection day, I have made you born again. So Jesus made the righteousness of God. So now, really quick, we're going to speak of Jesus' resurrection. Also, when, when the Bible speaks of Jesus' resurrection, it's referring to far more than Him coming out of the tomb alive. Let's go back to John chapter 11 and verses... We, we, we read verse 17. For sake of time, I won't read that again, 11 through 17. Um, let's go on to verse... Uh, whatever I told you guys right here. Verse 24. Um, because a few years ago, I got curious and I was trying to figure the timeline out. Um, so remember, Jesus resurrects from the dead. He appears to Mary. He says, don't touch me, for I'm yet ascending to my Father. Also, something real interesting, when he says, I've not yet ascended to my Father, it's present tense in the Greek. He's saying it's something I'm actually in the process of doing. All right? So when he's talking here, he's not talking about the ascent uh, in Acts chapter 1. Uh, verse, what I say? Verse 20? 24. Okay. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight, uh, eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he unto Thomas, Reach here your finger and your hands, and reach here your hand, and thrust it into my side. Eight days ago, Mary, don't touch me. I'm not yet ascended to my Father. Eight days later, go ahead and touch me. What, what, is the, what is the idea? In between that time, I have ascended to my Father. 
Not just to sit on the throne that we think of in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. What had to happen? Go with me here uh, to Hebrews chapter 9. And this is the last place we're going to look and we're going to finish up. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. See, because here's the thing, guys. This week, we are going to celebrate and honor and meditate upon the blood shed. Here's what I'm telling you. The finished work isn't just about the blood that was shed. It's about the blood that was presented. Okay? Hebrews chapter 9 is speaking of how the tabernacle of the Old Covenant was made as a model of something that was in heaven. So there was a tabernacle and a temple in the Old Covenant that is a a perfect picture of a temple that is in heaven. Okay? Um, And this whole chapter is about the blood of Jesus, and you you really need to read the whole chapter to get the gist of it. But I just want to get to, to the point I'm making. Hebrews 9, verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So here was the blood shed. It was therefore necessary. See, there's this idea, people have this, this idea that Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. It was necessary. That the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. What are these? Blood. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So he's saying that the the temple in heaven had a need to be cleansed. But isn't heaven perfect? Apparently not at this point. Now hold on. Job chapter 1 verse 2, the sons of God appeared before the throne and Satan came with them. If he's there, that place ain't perfect. But here what the author of Hebrews is telling us is, Jesus went... See, because So here's what happened. Something happened when man rebelled. Because here's the thing, man didn't fall. He didn't slip and fall. He rebelled. Man rebelled. Something happened that not only changed the earth, it changed heaven. And Satan not only had a right to do as he pleased with man, he had a right to go before the throne and accuse man to God. Okay, and like I said, there's some mysteries here. John chapter 12. I wanted to read all this, but I'm not. John chapter 12. Jesus says, Now is the hour that the the enemy will be kicked out of heaven. You can also read about it in Revelation chapter 12. This is why... So, and then here in Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So Jesus resurrects from the dead, and He goes to heaven, walks in the temple, walks into the holy of holies, and He says, look here, I paid the price. I shed my blood... I went to the realm of the dead and I overcame it. I have the legal right here now. And he kicked Satan out of heaven. Now, right now at this moment, heaven is perfect. And the enemy has no access through that place. All of heaven is for you. 
Alright, so, so there's different ages here. Listen, none of us are 2,000 years old. So this is what this means. There's not been one time in your life that someone in, in heaven has made an accusation about you. There is not one time in, in all of your life that you've done something and someone in heaven went... <laughs> not one time. Because the accuser of the brethren lost his right to be there. Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, let me talk about something really quick, and I'm going to hush. Hopefully. The authority of the believer. What if I told you... Gosh, am I going to say that? They're... The authority of the believer sounds good. And you do have authority when you awaken to who you are in Christ and things like that. But Christ wasn't saying, I'm giving authority to the believer. That's not what he was saying. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. And we say, look at that. Man, a man, because realize, Jesus is a man. There is a man sitting on a throne in heaven. Just like you and I, but glorified. Perfect. All right? And so, <laughs> we like, oh man, Jesus, he, he got authority in earth. And we just, oh now the believer, you have authority in the earth. Here's the thing. Man always had authority in the earth. Always. Man never lost his authority in the earth. This idea that Satan took man's authority, give me a Bible verse for that. You can't. He never had authority on the earth. Man yielded to Him. So He took what man gave Him. Psalm 115.16, was that written after the garden? Yes. The heavens, even the heavens are the, earth, or are the Lord's, but the earth He has given to the children of men. You didn't take that right, so it's not your right to give it to someone. If I'm renting off someone, I have no right to say, I'm going to head out and you can come in here and stay. It's not my property. It doesn't belong to me. It's not my right to give it to someone else. It's the owner's. All right? And so God leased the earth out to man. So man always had this authority. And these people, and I used to believe this, this idea that Satan took man's authority and had it all through the Old Testament up until the resurrection of Jesus. Let me ask you this. Why did God have to become a man then? Because here was a spirit being, according to this idea, that just took the authority. He wanted it, so he just took it. So couldn't God just say, hmm, no, you ain't. Take it back. <laughs> no, the authority belonged to man. So God had to become a man so he could legally take and use that authority. Now here's the thing. So remember, I'm saying the, the, the astonishing statement that Jesus makes there isn't that I have authority in, on the earth. He's a man. He operated in authority all through the four Gospels. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't the astounding thing. The astonishing thing there was I, a man, have authority in heaven. There is now a man. See, man always had the earth. But now a man has heaven. And because 
He has heaven. So the authority of the believer is nothing more than us waking up to who we are in Christ and and what has been given to us in Christ and we just come into agreement with that man that has all the authority in heaven. And we say, listen, that dude, he's done pretty good for himself. Thy will be done. That man, he's doing pretty good for himself. I think I'll do what he's doing. So all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. And here's the thing. I love this. Listen, listen. And, and, this people, and people point out, yeah, but Satan, he's the God of this world, right? That was written after Jesus said, all authority is mine. So Satan being the God of this earth has no, it, it's nothing about taking like his, his ownership. It's not about this, this right that he has. You can go study it out another time. Maybe I'll preach on it sometime. You know how Satan is the God of this world? Because John would say the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world, Satan still only has one tactic. It's what he had in the garden. It's what he had in the Old Testament. It's what he tried to, to use against Jesus in the New Testament. It's what he, tried, you know, he has one weapon, deception. He's the God of this world. Remember, that's written after Jesus said He had all the authority on earth. He's the God of this world because He's the God that the world has, ch- has chosen to believe. It has nothing to do with a legal right. And this is good news. Saved, lost, guess what? You know what this means? You have authority over your own life. You are not, you are not anyone's victim. You are, you, you, you are in... You have control of your life. And here's the good news. But this is, you need grace, right? Because grace is what gives you the ability to overcome these things. Grace gives you that righteous nature. All right? So, man, I'm getting off here. Okay. All right. Okay. Let's look. All right. I'm excited. Okay. All right. So, here, here, just finishing up, guys. So, let's look at a timeline really quick. Jesus goes to the cross. On the cross, he becomes sin. He takes upon the curse, he takes the curse of the law upon himself. He takes all of sin's consequences upon himself. He he deals and becomes the sacrifice right there for our sin. He took as that sin nature, he descended into the realm of the dead. He ascended, descended into the abode of the wicked. And there he paid the legal debt that we owed. He felt separation. He felt every he he felt like God was a million miles away, but by faith he kept a good opinion in his father. He believed his promises and he was made righteous. He was born again. He proclaimed it to the fallen spirits. You can read about that in 1 Peter chapter 3. He proclaimed his victory to them. He took the keys of death and hell in the grave. He rose from the dead. He appeared to Mary After he sent Mary away, he went to the Father. He presented his blood in heaven. He kicked Satan out. He comes back and he appears to his disciples. And then the scripture says that he taught them for 40 days. And then he ascended. And when he ascended, he sat on the throne. So the finished work, the finished work of the cross, and please listen to me. If you say that around me or someone says this behind this pulpit or I, even I say, I'm not trying to be a stickler. 
I'm just saying, listen, when you see these things that happened in these three days that changed the world this week, as you meditate upon these things, it just gives you so much more of a greater appreciation. It was so much more than just six hours on a cross. And I'm not downplaying that. Like I said, what he went through on that cross was horrible. But now, his victory is our victory. His righteousness is our righteousness. His peace is our peace. His authority is our authority. Okay? The work is finished. So this week, as we come upon Good Friday, that no matter how much you stretch it, you're not going to count three days and three nights to Sunday morning. So if you want to, I'm not going to be picky, but if you want to start thinking about this stuff about Wednesday, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> makes more sense, doesn't it? Um, so when you begin meditating upon this, those days that he was in the grave, know that he feels what you feel. He felt what you felt. He took it to the lowest parts of the earth. He took it to the realm of the dead and he overcame it. He conquered it. He left it in that place. He defeated it once and for all and now you have the victory. You know, this past week, I'm going to say this and I really am going to hush this time. <laughs> I really am going to hush this time. Okay. Just the other day, you know, with what Brian was saying, and I believe that it was inspired by the Spirit when he was saying that you can just feel it in this room this morning. Yesterday morning, or yesterday throughout the day, I cried, and I am not a person that cries. I just, I just don't cry. You probably, some of you have seen me at my worst moment. I don't cry. I'm just not someone who cries. Yesterday, I cried all through the day. And it's because Jesus has been overwhelming me with this realization that at every low moment I've had in life, He has been right there. And I wasn't going to share this, but I will, just so you can see what I'm, how deep I'm talking about here. Um, back in 2019, for those of you who are visiting or don't know me, we lost our 11-year-old son. And I can remember sitting in that room with my wife, with his body... For three or four hours, we just sat there, and the only thing we heard was tears and sniffling, just silence. And while I was meditating upon this yesterday and thinking about this, I could sense him there. I didn't feel him that day. I felt like he was a million miles away. But in my mind that day, it's like he let me see in the Spirit, and he was sitting right there, while we were crying and, and just ha wondering what are we going to do, he was right there. And I've studied a lot of, of near-death experiences and things like that, and they're interesting, you know. Um, and something, you know, you'll find out, most people who, have, who, who die and go to heaven, a lot of them, and I would say most of them, say that they didn't see Jesus right away. Now, some do, but a lot of them say they didn't see Jesus right away. Some say they never seen him. They knew he was there, but they never seen him. They knew they was where he is, but they didn't see him. 
And I want, I've always wondered about that because, you know, don't we want to see Jesus first? I believe the reason those people don't see Jesus first is because he is gone to comfort the families. I believe in those initial moments he's with the families. And he's taking care of them because he knows the person who's passed, they're all right. I got all eternity to, to, to help these people, to, to, to put my arm around them, hug them, deal with them. But these people are hurting now. So whatever you're going through and whatever you've been through, he's been right there. And he dealt with that in the three days in which he changed the world. And that's what we're going to celebrate next Sunday. We're going to celebrate when he, when he was resurrected and and, and, man, it's, it's going to be awesome. But take some time to think about this this week. You're not alone because he's there. I need to take up the offering, don't I? I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, okay, let's take up the offering. Um, I won't do a teaching this morning because uh, I've took, taken too long. So if you need to give an envelope, you can raise your hand and Tim will come around to you. Um, anyways, hope this has blessed you guys. Don't get too mad at me if you've disagreed with this. It's all right. Um.